Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Now, if you're listening to this and you've listened to a lot of episodes in the past, you probably notice that the sound is a little bit different. I, in fact, recently moved, and that was why there was one week of disruption in the release of this podcast. However, it's been almost a month, actually more than a month by the time you're listening to this, since I released the last episode. Why is that? There was a serious crisis in whether it was worth keeping this podcast growing. And this wasn't just because of the numbers. No, it was because of something much, much worse. To be quite frank, I was right about corruption being greater than the state, particularly down south in the United States. You remember that on our last episode, I talked about the system in Lebanon, how the system became so corrupt due to sectarian conflict that the government became incapable of solving the most basic problems, including having literal explosives sitting in a port for months. I talked about how the Prime Minister, once discovering the ineptitude of the government and really the lack of agency that even he had as the top executive to actually fix anything, he resigned, saying, I knew there was corruption in the state, but now I realize that corruption is greater than the state. We haven't quite reached that point yet in the United States. It's much like a forest fire. The forest fire begins, and then there's a time when if the resources are mustered, you can put it out. Eventually, the forest fire spreads more and more, until no matter how many resources you you put towards containing it, it'll keep spreading, and all you can do is slow it down, until the conditions change. We're at that point right now. If we don't stay vigilant, then soon everything will be on fire. And, quite frankly, that is not fine. Now, what does this mean for power going forward? What does this allegory mean in real life? It means that the blatant corruption, the nepotism, the bribery that occurs in the American political system will continue. It will continue despite our best efforts to stop it. It will continue even if there manages to be a true populist leader, and it will continue regardless of what the people think. Now, what does this mean for actually combating it? It means there needs to be a replacement of some of the people who are in power, and there needs to be a replacement of some of the uh, the laws that enable this bribery to take place. So, what exactly am I hoping to accomplish with this podcast now? Let's talk about it. But in order to understand that, we have to first understand what the podcast was about before. Before, the podcast was very education-focused. It was about giving listeners the tools they needed in order to understand the world around them, in order to understand political systems and media systems, and in order to see through the political games that are happening and are using them as pawns. I mainly try to avoid political fights, I try to avoid taking policy positions unless they were either directly addressing corruption or they were so blatantly obvious that likely 80 or 90% of the country agreed with it. This was mainly meant to be non-combative. It was meant to be appealing to all people, no matter what side they were on, no matter if they already had a political dog in the fight. This is because, even if someone has very partisan political interests, I still think it would be better for all of us 
if that person understood the media systems at play and they understood what possible sources of disinformation they might be facing. However, quite frankly, this is too slow. There can be a lot done with regard to education, and education is good, but it'll not solve the situation we're at. That's because we've passed the tipping point. The fire will continue spreading, and what we have to work towards now is to stop it in its place. Now, you might be wondering how these changes came to be, why I've made this new decision with the podcast. And of course, if you're listening to this, maybe you follow the news as well. Maybe you don't. And in that case, let me catch you up on these. You might notice that these are all stories in the United States. It looks like that they saw the shenanigans going on in Eastern Europe, and the United States political system, quite frankly, told them to hold my beer. It's been quite crazy, even for American standards. So without further ado, let's get started. California wildfires. We dealt with a version with of this in Canada, because the West Coast is connected up to this country, including in our great province of British Columbia. And quite frankly, it was a wonderful side-by-side comparison of a media system that is functioning and a media system that isn't. It's also important to note that the provincial government of British Columbia handled the situation much better than any of the American states, although geographically, they also had an easier situation to face. Regardless, let's talk about the media effects, because that's really what's important here in my opinion. Although, of course, the destruction that these fires caused were very fundamental and did severely damage people's lives, we actually have to trace back to the root of the problem, which is what enables governments to not have to face consequences for failing such a straightforward task. Once again, the management was much better in Canada. The system that caused this to arise is, of course, the false dilemma that is presented to many people. This is prominent in American media as a whole, so why is it different this time? In fact, it was not only due to uh, the suggestion or the politics of distraction that is all too common, but an outright gaslighting and an outright lie that is being presented by both sides of partisan media. People are presented with a false choice between either climate change completely causing all of the growth in wildfires and between state mismanagement causing this. And as you probably could have guessed by now, and any reasonable person could, it's actually a result of both of these things. Now, there's not been significant enough research in order to determine which one of these causes this more. However, if you just look at the effects of British Columbia, the province of Canada, and of the three states that were affected in the United States, namely California, Oregon, and Washington state, you can see that management did play a difference in the growth of these fires over time. The reason why I say the growth of these fires over time is because with regards to geography, British Columbia does have less of a problem as opposed to the hotter areas of California, for example. However, if you look at what has changed as time progresses, then you can see that the rate of growth in California is much higher. The other thing that's important to note is that even if you isolate, say, British Columbia, or isolate all of these areas, there has been a sustained growth 
over time that roughly correlates with the rise in temperature due to global warming. So what does this information tell us? It tells us that if we want to reduce the impact of these significant forest fires, then we need to both increase preventative measures, including increasing controlled burns, essentially clearing areas of the forest that would be primed for starting more and more dangerous fires, as well as taking further steps to combat climate change. Now, I may have a video. Now, I may release an episode discussing climate policy in the future, but quite frankly, that isn't my area of expertise. However, if you simply look at the information that is presented, including comparing across countries, then it's clear that both of these factors are at play. Significant sections of the American media, including reporters on all major cable networks and in major print publications, are actively demonizing those who raise one of these points. Now, one of the things that I have warned about is talking about, quote-unquote, the media, or the left, or the right, in a kind of monolithic way. This is simply not how these systems work, and not all journalists were engaging in these destructive behaviors. However, at this point, it is simply too much for me to go through and name every individual journalist who has participated in these activities. You can probably try googling that journalist's name and California wildfires if you want to inquire about one specific person and check if their actions have been good or bad. And let me make it absolutely clear that both sides of the partisan media has been participating in these things. As usual, I don't know the ratios, I don't know what percentage of each side is, and I don't know which is worse, but that isn't the point. The point is that we should be opposing this type of disinformation. Now, what's actually happening is that people are actively antagonizing those who raise one of these points, who raise the point of state mismanagement, who usually come from the right wing, and those who raise the point of climate change, who usually come from the left wing. There are people on the right engaging in conspiratorial behavior and suggesting that climate change is a hoax. This is false. The amount of data that has been published in many systems that are much more transparent than the United States, including in Canada, including countries in the European Union, has shown that there is significant evidence of climate change. On the left, however, there has been equally conspiratorial attempts to deny the existence of state mismanagement, actively calling those who present that point as a significant factor as somehow opposed to climate change. While I'm sure there is a percentage of the people who call for the examination of state practices that are against further action on climate change, this is clearly not the actual motivation of the genuine experts who have talked about this. Those experts and scientists are also demonized by these conspiratorial figures on the left, those who hold prominent political and media positions. So, what does this false dilemma mean? What are the effects on the practical world? What this means is that people not only develop an obsession with one of these points, but are also antagonized towards the other one. That means that instead of having a coalition 
which would be possible under normal political circumstances, that recognizes that both of these are problems and will take steps in order to fix both of them, you actually have a situation where each side is directly opposed to the parts of solutions that would come from these other points of view. People are presented with a false dilemma. And unfortunately, many people who are presented with this information won't see through the lie and will simply accept it, whether it be on the left or on the right. In the longer term, what this means is that the speed in which things need to change, in which productive developments are actually created, that more science is conducted, and that the information necessary in order to change policies to address both of these problems will not be adapted in as quick of a time. In fact, what this means is that the people who want state changes, state policy changes in order to better manage forests, will have to wait longer in order to get the changes that will protect them from these wildfires, and the people who want active action against climate change will also have to wait longer, whether they be related to the forest fires or to other disasters. This is a very good example of how architecting false systems in order to try to promote one specific political point is actually going to be detrimental to creating a functional system that actually solves those problems. This is just a wonderful example that I could have almost written up and put into a textbook. As we saw with the case study in Lebanon, and as we see with many corrupt regimes around the world, the problem almost always is not malice. It's not that people are actively trying to harm specific parts of the population, although that does happen in a minority of cases. Almost always, the problem is incompetence. The problem is not having people who are aware of their surroundings, not aware of the problems that ordinary people are facing, and not competent enough to find the solution. That's how you end up with the port explosion in Lebanon, and that's how you end up with the wildfires in the United States. Next, let's delve further into media incompetence. This is, of course, the case of the shooting of Breonna Taylor. So, Breonna Taylor was a woman in the United States, in the state of Kentucky, who was in a relationship with someone suspected and actually, sorry, charged with various drug crimes. And at some point, she had moved past this relationship and was in another one. Nonetheless, the police suspected her of committing some sort of drug crime herself and used a no-knock warrant for her house. Now what this means is that the police were authorized to enter the home without actually announcing themselves. We'll talk about this later. While there have been claims that the police announced themselves anyway, this is under dispute. What isn't under dispute is that following this uh, warrant, the police did in fact enter the home, and one of the residents of the home, uh, Breonna Taylor's current boyfriend, assumed that there was a break-in. And because of this, he fired a shot, which then hit a police officer and injured him in the leg, I believe. What happened then was that, seeing that someone fired at them, the police fired back and eventually killed Breonna Taylor. The court handed down no charges with regards to this, 
only with regards to a charge of a police officer later firing recklessly. Now, this is a case that highlights one of the major problems with regards to discourse when it comes to police brutality. The problem is that one side tends to argue about whether it was legal, and the other side tends to argue about whether it was a good decision. Unfortunately, and with confirmation from the courts, it seems to be that this was a very poor decision with significant consequences, and nonetheless legal under the existing law. So, if you are someone who believes that this is unjust, the natural response should be, let's change the law. However, the response with regards to, once again, a large fraction of the political media, and especially with regards to some components of the activist crowd, has been to call for charges to be placed against the officer regardless of the law, instead of simply in changing the law for the future. What is important to understand here is that much like with government, many of these outcomes by police officers are created due to incompetence, not malice. There's also very strong cases that the practice of no-knock warrants is actively encouraging this type of event, and that they should be banned across the country. These are the points that these civil rights actions should be directed towards. They should be directed towards reforming police training, much in the line of many of the suggestions that I explained and that I directed you to learn more about in the first episode of this podcast, that actively change the laws for the future, preventing this type of situation from ever happening again. What has instead taken place is that people are actively pressuring police departments in order to press charges with regards to some technicality that they could possibly find. And in this case, it seems that there are none. However, you've seen this repeated with regards to many other instances of police brutality where they were not actually able to find problems with the direct conduct. However, due to public pressure and possibly in the hopes of avoiding political violence, they have pressed other additional charges. This circumvention of transparent of existing procedures that should directly connect problems that people have with laws that are written in law with regards to the punishments that those laws enforce creates a system where corruption can easily take hold. You've seen this in many Latin American countries, for example, where there are often politically motivated prosecutions, often of opposition figures, and even of activists themselves. The same thing is actively going on in Belarus. How one avoids this is to have a transparent system, is to have a system where solutions directly address the problem and not in some roundabout arbitrary way that law officials, some who aren't elected, are allowed to take hold of. This means that if you have something that you believe should not be permitted, then you would campaign on this, you would create a bill once you're elected, and then this bill would pass through the legislative bodies and become a law. Once it becomes a law, then the activity that we talked about or the problem that we talked about would then become illegal and the consequences could be levied from that law in the future. It creates a very transparent system where anyone can look up what is happening and anyone can realize that 
there is a direct tie to what is happening as a problem and the punishment that comes out of it. When you have an arbitrary system of legal officers looking for essentially random convictions, random charges that they can lay, many of which may be overbroad, many of which may not have much evidence for at all, then you're actually actively preventing the existing laws from taking hold. You're actively preventing the process changes that are necessary in order to build around this and in order to construct a better system in the future. So you might ask, how does this come about? It comes about partly due to human impulse. People want short-term solutions, and unfortunately, the shortest-term solution is to engage in this type of corruption. You would expect people to be more educated than that, particularly if they're given accurate information by the media. Oh, wait, this is America. So again, there are many actors in the media who are actively harming this process. And you get a more subtle version of the false dilemma that I talked about earlier. You have certain political figures simply defending the officers, saying that it was legal and that it was authorized. While technically correct, especially after the judgment was handed down by the court, this does still obscure part of the problem, which is that, which is that there is a widespread belief that these laws need to be changed. To be fair, there have been people on the, both the left and the right who have been pushing for these laws to actively be changed. And doing this, engaging in the process that creates a more transparent system, is a good thing and should be applauded. However, there's also been demonization, and there's also been an active push by figures in the media for these immediate, short-term kind of candy rewards. Things that might immediately provide you a political advantage, but are incredibly bad for you in the long term. Such as the arbitrary prosecution of some of these police officers. Some of this has to do with a conspiracy theory that we're going to talk about later. The problem is that when there is a high amount of information, people default to emotional reactions. This effect, often called or related to information overload, has a significant impact on how people make decisions and on whether they make decisions that are good for them in the long term. Unfortunately, the media system, particularly in the United States, has converged to try to create this information overload more and more, particularly with regards to issues that are heavily political. You can see that with regards to social issues, the effect from social media has particularly been to polarize those on the left and the right and to calcify them, to create emotional attachments from people to specific instances, to specific political cases, and to make it so that they aren't actually rationally thinking about the things in front of them. They aren't actually considering the long-term effects of their proposed actions, and they aren't actually trying to accomplish anything that would actually help attain the goals that they are proposing. This is the fundamental problem in American politics and in politics as a whole. It's not necessarily that one side wants to cause chaos, that one side wants to cause the disruption of democratic systems, and that one side wants to engage in heavy corruption, for the voters at least. It is a combination of three factors. One, disinformation. Active lies and conspiracies being spread 
through both various mainstream sources and through social media. 2. Calcification. People becoming more and more emotionally addicted to various political issues and being unable to prioritize, being unable to look at the vast array of issues and actually evening them out and weighing them for what is important. And not actually being able to consider what effect the government will have on these issues, what scale these issues actually have, and instead of being motivated by trying to help the most people or having the most tangible effect, they become motivated arbitrarily by stories and by emotional appeals that end up having no contribution towards actually solving the problem. The third problem is dysfunction. You have many cases in which people have the goal that they have in mind and are yet unable to achieve it. This is because they don't recognize that problems are incredibly difficult to solve. There is high technical skill required in order to serve in government, and unfortunately government systems are increasingly selecting for people who don't have those skills. This is because the corrupt nature of various government systems cause these people to rather work in research or they would rather work in the corporate world and would much less prefer to actually serve in government, let alone have to run for office. A greater problem is that people are unaware of this competence issue. People are unaware that many of these problems are incredibly difficult and as such they deduce, falsely, that the only reason that someone wouldn't accomplish these things is because they're secretly trying to undermine these processes. Keeping these problems in mind, it's probably fairly easy to determine what has to be done in order to resolve this specific issue. First of all, there needs to be a replacement of the media. This is one of the things that I'm going to be actively campaigning on from now on, and I'm going to try to start a grassroots campaign with regards to. The American media needs to be replaced. That's it. I personally have experience with the Canadian media. Despite being imperfect, as all media systems are, they are just a breath of fresh air. Moreover, because of proximity, Canadian journalists often have a higher degree of information about the American system while not succumbing to some of the corruption and some of the flaws that does occur in the American system. It means creating a national framework in the United States to broadcast various Canadian media sources and redirecting readers to Canadian sources and redirecting sources to Canadian print media. Now, why is this important? This is important because the American political system and the media has become so intertwined that a lot of the political corruption and the disinformation that has been targeted at the United States has greatly influenced journalism. That is where all of this started, with the media, and it's going to have to be where the solution starts as well. Check back later for more news on where this campaign is going, but for now, just keep that idea in mind. And also, you can start yourself by just going to by just going to various Canadian sources online. I don't want to seem to be promoting any of them by mentioning one in particular, but if you Google Canadian media, I'm sure you're going to find some sources. Last thing we're going to talk about is the deterioration of the American political system, and of course this means talking about the debates. Yeah, uh, so I didn't watch the entire debate. I actually watched more than, than I should have. I watched more than you would have expected, uh, particularly as someone who 
analyzes this type of thing. There's no gentle way to put this, okay? Trump thinks the system has already destroyed itself. And, quite frankly, he might be right. As I said before, not everything is on fire yet, but that may very well be the case if given even just a few more years. So, essentially what happened in the debates was that Trump constantly interrupted basically every single thing that Joe Biden was trying to say. He gave some, I would say, suspicious answers, but they're equally probable to be just Trump being stupid, as opposed to Trump having any sort of malicious intent. And I've avoided commenting directly on this election so far, but quite frankly, there's only one world where this type of election can take place, and it's a world where there's just a consensus among the media and among the candidates, or at least among one candidate, that everything is absolutely collapsed. This only occurs if you believe that voters would uh, approve of such a strategy. And quite frankly, I don't believe that voters would approve of such a strategy. Then there have been many figures on the right, including former governor Chris Christie, who also suggests that this is not the case. However, there isn't much to talk about on this file until more polls come out, or until, quite frankly, the election happens, which is actually exactly one month from the day in which this podcast is being recorded. Now, let's talk about what I'm going to be doing with this podcast in the future. Now, as I talked about before, this podcast was mainly about helping people essentially vaccinate themselves from misinformation. It was about uh, giving people more information, it was about explaining various political systems and just getting people's general knowledge up. However, now it's going to be much more about actively calling out and opposing disinformation, which we talked about with regards to the three or I guess four stories that we presented. And it's about combating corruption, disinformation, and creating functional systems. Also, just a note geographically, before I was mainly trying to observe the best and brightest test cases for how political systems fail and how political systems can succeed. And because of that, I looked a lot to Eastern Europe, I looked a lot to the Middle East, and just around the world in general. However, noting where my audience is from, and noting the more active role that I'm trying to take, I'm mainly going to be focusing more on North America now. So what does this mean? It means I'm going to be calling out a lot more conspiracy theories. This includes the QAnon or Deep State conspiracy theories, that essentially assert some sort of conspiracy behind some combination of political figures, celebrities, or other wealthy individuals that are doing, uh, say, illegal activities with minors. Obviously, this conspiracy theory is false, as I talked about in my statistics episode and anti-intellectualism episode. There is very little statistical evidence to support these, and there is a very objective, neutral way in order to point these things out, which you can check out on that episode. It also involves calling out similar conspiracy theories involving the deep state, which, while may not allege crimes as grave, do often involve baseless charges, they often involve China, they often involve the personal families of a lot of political figures, and while I'm not going to go into specifics now, these do also tend to be very detrimental, they are obviously false, and they misdirect people from where the real corruption is, which is, once again, incompetence, not malice. Finally, we're also going to be focusing on combating racial suppressive conspiracy theories. These are conspiracy theories that are mainly started in order to create more disinformation 
and to create more disillusion within certain race-based communities. They often try to discourage people from voting, creating a greater sense of tragedy or of malice within one political party or the other. They are often conspiratorial to the degree that suggesting that every single person around one sort of community or every single politician of a particular party is actively malicious, is actively racist, or some other sort of conspiratorial allegation. Now, much like the QAnon conspiracy theories and the other child trafficking conspiracy theories, they often use singular examples in order to push further misinformation. And once again, it's important to separate the Epsteins from the QAnons. What this means is that while there may be individual cases of something happening, they are not suggestive of a conspiratorial way of thinking. And my next episode is going to be about exactly this. I'm going to go a lot more in depth with regards to this in the future, and you guys can absolutely check back for that. I'm really glad to have made this update, to have kept this podcast going, and quite frankly to help the lives of at least, I don't know, around 50 people who are subscribed to this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Let me know what you guys think of this new direction in the comments, and as usual, like, share, subscribe, and just spread the news. Tell as many people as you can, especially if they live in the United States or have business ties to the United States, because it is just so important that we get ahead of the clock, that we start now, and we stop this before, quite frankly, the corruption becomes greater than the state.